All right, well, we have been in this series called Binge the Bible. Binge the Bible, season one. Today is episode three. We're taking it like we would a Netflix show. We're taking this quick overarching view of each book of the Bible, a 10,000 foot view of what is the story of this book and how does it help us understand the story of scripture and the personality, the persona, the story of God. And uh, we've done Genesis and Exodus so far. And today we are in everybody favorite book, Leviticus. It's Leviticus Sunday at the Gathering Church. You've been waiting for this moment. We're recording it. You can watch it as many times as you want. How many of y'all's Bible reading, annual Bible reading plans died in the book of Leviticus? You got to April and you were like doing so good with Genesis and Exodus was so fun. Oh my goodness gracious. It was like the script for the Prince of Egypt. And then you get to Leviticus and it's chapter one. We're going to kill some goats. And you're like, oh no, what happened? This book took a dark turn. My goodness gracious. Uh, This book is so crucial to our understanding of the Bible. The book of Leviticus gives us a framework for holiness. Holiness. A lot of what the Bible talks about is this idea of holiness. And holiness is not defined more clearly anywhere other than Leviticus. It gives us an understanding of the holiness of God. We believe God is holy. He is so holy. He cannot look upon sin. As soon as we make the mistake of sin, as soon as we bring it into our lives and our hearts, we start to choose things that are opposite to the ways and the will of God. We bring sin into our lives and it separates us from God. God is separated from sin because of his holiness. Leviticus is a book about the holiness of God and how an unholy man or woman can approach a holy God. How do we strive for holiness? What does it look like to create holiness in our life? That is what the book of Leviticus is about. A quick recap. In Genesis chapter 3, we see God has created man and he loves man. He says it's good. Man and woman are living in the presence of God in the garden alongside of him every day. And God gives them free will, but not a good understanding of evil. But in that free will, he says, there's only one thing I don't want you to do. And it is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat from it because it looks delicious. I don't know. They had to. And at that moment, a separation comes between humanity and God because now sin is in the heart of man. Man now has free will and an understanding of how to do evil. He chooses it. He, he longs for it. He goes in that direction. And the further on through Genesis we go up to chapter 11, the more depraved we see humanity become as greater distance grows between humanity and God. The farther from God man gets, the more depraved he gets. The more evil enters his heart, the harder it is for him to choose good things. So God brings his presence closer to us in Genesis chapter 12. He makes a covenant with a man named Abram. And he changes his name to Abraham. And through Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. He gives a prediction uh, or or a promise, really, about the coming of Jesus. He says, I'm going to use you to bless every nation. I'm going to give you the ground you're standing on. It was the land of Canaan, which today we know is the land of Israel. Uh, He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You're going to be my holy nation, Abraham. And in Abraham, he makes these promises that bring his presence closer to humanity from that point in the story on. 
Now Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac receives the blessings from Abraham, and, uh, and then Isaac passes them on to his son Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and those become the 12 tribes of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll see about the 12 tribes of Israel, and those started with the 12 sons of Jacob, and those sons and Jacob all moved to Egypt at the end of Genesis because there was a great famine, and God had made it so that an Egyptian ruler was using a Hebrew man named Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, in order to save the region. And so they moved there, but after some time, the Pharaoh forgot what Joseph had done for his nation. He became afraid of how they were multiplying and how many Hebrew people were living in Egypt, and so he enslaved them. And the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. They were living there as slaves until God raised up a deliverer in Moses. Uh, the book of Exodus is all about Moses being raised up as a deliverer. He comes and he says, let my people go. And it's awesome. There's fire falling from the sky, frogs everywhere. It's incredible. And uh, God leads his people out of a slavery in Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. The people cross the Red Sea. God takes them to Mount Sinai where he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The people are excited about the Ten Commandments. Just kidding, they're worshiping a golden cow that they made out of earrings. And so Moses gets mad, he smashes the Ten Commandments. The people are like, so sorry about that, except for 3,000 of them who die. Moses gets a second Ten Commandments and brings it down. And the rest of Exodus is about God establishing the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant as a place for his physical presence to dwell among his people. So from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Exodus, we see a journey for God's presence to have a way to get closer and closer and closer to humanity. In, uh, in Exodus chapters, uh, the whole back half of it, we see all these rules about the tabernacle and how it should be built. And it's this temporary house of worship is what it is. It has different layers and different areas uh, that get you closer and closer to the presence of God. And the priests were the only one who could go there. And in the very central part is this box. And this box is a seat. It's got the mercy seat right in the middle of it. And it's a seat for the presence of God, the physical presence of God. So this is a thing that exists now, and it's very exciting. But the problem is, nobody can get close to it. It says in Exodus chapter 40 that even Moses couldn't get close to the box. I've jumped ahead in my notes. Anyways, I'll never find it. Uh, Moses couldn't even get close to the box. And... Um, so God had to create a way for the unholy man, even Moses, to approach the holy God. And that is where we enter into the book of Leviticus. That's what it's all about. Uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, declares the mission statement. It says, you, my people, shall be holy to me. Set apart is what holy means. Set apart. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The book of Leviticus is about God helping the people understand how to get close to him. And what it reveals to us is how difficult it is to make ourselves worthy of entering into the presence of God. Because God is at a level of perfection that we as people can't even begin to understand. 
In the book of Leviticus, we say it this way, that Exodus is about getting the people out of Egypt. The book of Leviticus is about getting Egypt out of the people. It took one day for the people to be removed from slavery. It took 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for slavery to be removed from the people. What happens to us when we are living in bondage is a lot enters into our hearts and our minds, our spiritual, our emotional, and our mental selves. We are filled with, one, we are filled with the culture of our oppressor. It, it infiltrates every part of us and takes away the things that God put in us that he wanted us to retain. We bring on all these pe- These people were also in slavery alongside others from the region. They were bringing their cultures, their religions, their practices into their world as well. And so God wanted them to be free, not just physically, but free spiritually, emotionally, and mentally all the way. And so uh, that is why as a church, we emphasize finding freedom as a part of the process we want to take you on. If you didn't know this, um, we have a plan for you, uh, just like everyone else in your life does. We got a plan for you. We've got an ulterior motive. Our ulterior motive is that we might lead you down a simple path that you might know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. Uh, We believe that knowing God is the very first step because the Bible declares that he wants to be known by you. He's not a mysterious God. He is a God who wants to be known by you. He reveals himself to you. And it doesn't matter what you did today, yesterday, before this, what you might do tomorrow, God still wants you to know him. And that is the very first step. He's made a way for you to know him first, but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to have freedom, not just physically, but all the way through. And so he wants you to find freedom in your soul. And so that process, finding freedom, is what Leviticus is spelling out. In Philippians 2.12, it says, work out your salvation through fear and trembling. Paul doesn't say in this because he means we have to earn our way close to God. That's not what salvation is about in the context of Philippians. Now Jesus has come. What he's saying is we need to have a greater understanding of our salvation that we need to work to become closer to who God has called us to be, to move in the direction he longs for us to move. And in order to do that, it takes work. And so Leviticus shows us that God is holy. He wants us to have a standard of holiness. And it is the history of how his people as a nation began. Leviticus, a book of instructions. And it could be separated into two sections, sacrifice and sanctification. First section is sacrifice. Uh, It goes hot right out of the gate. Chapters one through seven are instructions for physical offerings. Uh, It is how we approach a holy God. Each book of the Bible declares our need for the presence of God. In Genesis, the further people got from it, the greater their depravity grew. In Exodus, the presence of God represented freedom, When it was on the mountain, uh, while Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, it says the presence of God was on the mountain, and the people were further from his presence, and in came idolatry and depravity and all those other things again. As people, we have to stay close to God in order to become more like God. But we're not able to approach him because of our sin. It creates a separation. 
Moses couldn't get into the presence. Here, I found it. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. It's just hard for us to understand the holiness of God, I think, as a people. It's hard for us to grasp how good he is and how separated from sin he is. This whole system of sacrifices exists because God said the penalty of sin is death. He declared it. Genesis chapter 3 said, if you make this mistake, you will die. Remember, the devil immediately says, will you? Will you really die? He wants us to question God the way we would question one another. The way, we, if I were to say something to you that sounded extreme, you may be thinking, surely he doesn't really mean that. But everything that God says he means, that is the absolute portion of his character that we has to have to grasp from the book of Leviticus, that his word is final. He doesn't change his mind. In Isaiah 55, he says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. His morality and his sense of justice is perfect. It is perfect. Sin drives a wedge that cannot be bridged without the penalty being met. And the penalty is previously established as death. Only through blood, only through sacrifice can we be forgiven for our sin. And God is gracious and compassionate and loving and abounding in love and faithfulness is what Exodus 34 says. And because of that, uh, he created a way for us to be atoned for. An atonement means to take something, to take my sin. An atoning sacrifice is where I transfer my sin onto something else. And that's what Leviticus 1 through 7 is all about. It has these blood sacrifices. It's rough. You brought the best of your flock, a firstborn lamb or a goat or ram or a cow, and you brought it in. And it's worth noting that in Leviticus, there is a sliding scale. It says, if you, don't have a, a, if you don't have a ram, then bring a goat. If you don't have a goat, bring a sheep. If you don't have a sheep, bring a dove. If you don't have a dove, bring some good crops. If you don't have any good crops, we'll figure it out. <laughs> God is, is, does not, his economy is for everyone. He, he makes sure that there is a way for every single person to approach him. And so you bring your favorite goat, you know, maybe you've named this goat Maggie. You love Maggie. It's the best goat. Best goat you ever had. Beautiful goat. You lead this goat to the tabernacle, you know, and you're like, Maggie, it's going to be a rough day. You lay your hand upon Maggie's head and the priest comes and there's prayers given and they slaughter this goat. And a number of things could happen from there. In fact, that's what chapters one through seven are about. But at the moment this goat's blood is spilled, your sin is transferred to this goat and it becomes an atoning sacrifice. It is very sad. It's supposed to be. It was always meant to be a temporary system. Chapters one through three are optional offerings of praise. There are ways to specifically honor God for something that he had done. Chapter one is thank offerings. Chapter two is praise offerings. Chapter three is peace offerings. Uh, then in chapters four and five, there are mandatory offerings, a guilt offering and a sin offering. Here's an example of what that looks like. Um, in chapter five, it says, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, 
He shall bear his iniquity. Even if you sin and you didn't mean to, you're still responsible for this sin. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish or out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering and he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. This is, even, this is the holiness of God. Even if I didn't mean to, I am still held responsible. Even if I didn't know, I'm st- it's like when you go to a restaurant and they give you the little metal container with the sauce in it. And then you didn't eat everything. And so they bring you your to-go box and it's not going to be as good without the sauce. The sauce is an important part of the meal. And they gave you that container. They gave it to you. They physically handed it to you. They never said you have to give this back. And so you want to take the sauce home and you put the sauce into your to-go box. You close it up. You take it home. You get it out and you're eating your leftovers the next day. And your wife is like, what is that? And you're like, what? It's my leftovers from yesterday. And she's like, no, the sauce container. I'm like, what holds the sauce? And she's like, you can't take that. And I'm like, what do you mean it can't take that? She said, well, it's stealing. I was like, well, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's actually stealing. That's one of the Ten Commandments. I don't think it's stealing. She said, no, it's physically, it's literally, literally stealing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, it is stealing. I stole from Ichiban. <laughs> what do I do? Well, here's what I do. I go and I get my favorite goat and I take it to the tabernacle and I place my hand on its head, slaughter it, and I get to keep the sauce container. All right. All all the animal sacrifice feels a little bit crazy. It feels sad, but it's just important for us to understand that sin requires sacrifice. The blood is the penalty for sin and it cannot go unpaid. It is a debt that has to be repaid, period. What sin destroys, a sacrifice of blood restores. And this was always meant to be, as God is establishing this system in Leviticus, a temporary solution to a permanent problem. Our God is a God of justice. His law requires justice. We want a just God. Our understanding of justice changes with the culture we live in. The way we, the the things we cry out for, the justice we believe we deserve, how it's defined, it moves and shifts depending on when you live and where you live. God's justice is permanently fixed. That is what we want. We want a God who is unchanging. But his requirement of a penalty for sin is fixed. But he had a plan even here. Hebrews chapter 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But a little bit further back in chapter 13, in verse 13 of chapter 9, own son. Nothing we can do on our own can close the gap between us and God. Only sacrifice, which is why Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. The next thing Leviticus does it goes, is go into the instructions for priesthood. God wants Aaron to head up a priesthood that would be passed down through his family, the Levites. This is Moses' tribe and his brother Aaron's tribe, the Levites, the Levitical people. Uh, now, it's worth remembering that Aaron here is being asked to head up the priests pretty shortly after he has made a golden calf for everyone to worship. His record is not spotless. It's a great reminder of how God loves second chances. We, we, as a culture, we're pretty quick to write someone off when it comes to second chances. And if you came in here with the understanding that God's probably done with you because of what you've done in your life, I want you to remember that our God is not done with you until he's done with you. 
He's got more for you. He's got more opportunities. And so Aaron creates the order of Levitical priests. God creates it through Aaron. He gives them all these different instructions on what they should do, how they should set themselves apart, what this priesthood looks like. And it's very important because the Hebrew faith is going to rely on these priests to help them approach the presence of God for, thou- for a long time, thousands of years to come. 1,500 years to come. Uh, and God uses Aaron despite his mistakes. Now, Aaron breaks one of the commandments, the first commandment. He makes an idol, and that's his sin. But there is a type of sin that we see dealt with very harshly in the Old Testament. Maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, these are the questions that you're like, well, these are the stories you're like, oh my gosh. There's one part, one moment where a man is smitten because he's carrying the Ark of the Covenant. This is much later in the story, and he stumbles, and God smites him dead. Terrifying. Then there's this story in Leviticus chapter 10. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took the censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They were worshiping God the way they wanted to worship God instead of the way God had asked to be worshiped. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. There are some moments like this in the Old Testament that make you wonder what's going on. There's second chances for guys like Aaron, but then these guys got roasted. Why? It is because of this kind of sin. How we approach God without an understanding or an appreciation of his holiness. Instead of following the outlines given to them in the two chapters preceding, they approached God how they wanted to, and they were consumed for it. It's a good reminder to us today to think about how we approach God. He is still holy. Often we have the attitude that we want God to do things our way. We want to worship him our way. We want things to go the way we want them to go. I want this from you, God. I want you to look like this, God. I want you to act like this, God. I want to believe this about you, God. I want you to give justice like this. I want you to accept this offering, not the one you asked for. We forget that we are approaching a holy God. He is not made in our image. We are made in his. This also drives home the theme of this book, which is holiness. God is holy. He is completely set apart from anything else. And he wants us to set ourselves apart for him. Leviticus gives us the standard. So the second part of Leviticus is the standard. Sanctification is what it's called. That is a fancy church word for to be made holy, to be set apart. Sanctification. Leviticus 11 through 27 is all instructions for holiness. Uh, There's about 613 different instructions or laws in this portion of Leviticus. That's a lot. There are a lot of laws about diet, what animals you can eat, what kinds you can't eat, what hooves are good, what hooves are bad. Don't eat some shrimps, okay? That's not great. I love shrimps. I ate it last night. Thank God for Acts chapter 10. Uh, there's, it says not to boil a, a baby goat in its mother's milk. So please remember that one. I think that still stands. 
all kinds of dietary laws in here. Uh, some are for sanitary reasons. God is creating a new nation. He wants it to be prosperous. He wants it to grow and spread. So he's protecting them from disease that the rest of the world isn't even aware of yet. We see a lot of that in the dietary laws. Uh, there are a lot of dietary laws that are really just about holiness, about setting them apart from the nations around them, about making them different. Uh, there's this, all these laws and rules about God just establishing his people as his people, set apart for him, not like the rest of the world. Leviticus reminds us that even today as we follow Jesus, we shouldn't look the way everybody else looks. If you look around and you're going the same way the crowd is going, you might be following Jesus the wrong way. You might not be following him at all. We should have a different purpose. We should have a different set of standards. We should have a different system of morality than the world around us. Leviticus shows us that, reminds us. Um, dietary laws are re removed in Acts chapter 10. Uh, God reveals to Peter that, that he can eat anything with anybody, that all of this is completed. This part of the, ness, the need for these laws is completed. It is finished. They're not abolished. They're fulfilled. More so now, the laws that we still see in effect are about how we live, what we say, what our purpose is. Um, so in this section, we see a lot of dietary laws. We see laws about what is considered clean or unclean. We see quarantine laws. This is 3,000 years before quarantine is a regular medical practice. God puts it into practice. There's laws forbidding tattoos. There's Leviticus chapter 18, which is all the sexual laws. There's just stuff we got to move on from, you know? We got to just not talk about today. Um, that was for my mom, who's still feeling sad about my tattoos. Um, okay. There's a lot of sexual laws. Uh, about not having, about basically they all are summed up as only have sex with your spouse uh, and who that spouse should be. For example, not your sister. Sorry for Mississippi or Alabama. That's your... And I'm sorry that I said that. I'm from South Carolina. I don't know what I'm doing. All right. A uh, lot of rules. And if you'll notice, if you're new to faith, that some of these rules are new, uh, or some of these rules we still follow, some of them we don't, some of them are currently part of our understanding of faith, some of them we've done away with. Maybe you've wondered, maybe you came in here today, you didn't expect to get Leviticus, you're getting Leviticus, you're like, oh my gosh. But now we can talk about this, which many people who are new to faith, or those of us who've been in faith all of our lives, we have this question, we're wondering, how do we know which ones we keep and which ones we disregard? How do we know what in the Old Testament is good and what is bad? How do we know what we can throw out and what do we cling to? Where do we find that distinction? Is there a disclaimer somewhere in the Gospels? How do we know which rules still matter? Are we picking based off what we like and what we don't like? Absolutely not. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but I have come to fulfill them. Many of these rules, rituals, instructions, laws exist to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. Many of them exist to get all the conditions in the Hebrew peoples correct for the coming of Jesus. The system that is established in Leviticus is completed in Jesus. He is our priest now. He is the sacrifice now. He makes us holy. He makes a way for us to enter into the presence of God. 
Paul says in this, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law and Leviticus exist to show us the gap that stands between me and God, this gap of holiness. All of these things that keep me from getting close to him. It helps me understand the holiness of God. The law reveals to us how desperately we needed Jesus. And it made it possible for us to approach God before Jesus. Romans is a great book to study. Romans and Hebrews will give you an excellent understanding of this. That's your homework. I don't have two hours to exposit all of it for you today. But I will make it simple by separating it into three categories to help us understand the way that this is figured out. First is moral law. There are laws in Leviticus that are for all people at all times. They are moral laws and they are rehashed throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see them through the whole story of Scripture. Then there are laws that are civil laws. These are for governing disputes. God is creating a nation. And so there are civil laws built in Leviticus. Ceremonial laws, which are for priests and regarding this temple worship, this type of temple worship and the priesthood itself. Most of the laws in Leviticus are ceremonial laws. We are not their audience. Leviticus was written around 1500 BC by Moses to the Hebrew people, very specifically written to the Hebrew people. It is so important for us to remember. We look and we read the Bible and we're just looking for ourselves in the story. How is this about me? What is in here is about me. It's my story. It's, it's the story of me and then God also. The Bible is not about you. You're not the main character. The Bible is about God. It is his story. From start to finish, it declares who he is, what he has done, and how he is bringing his presence closer to us. That's what the Bible declares. It's his story. What we need to do is learn who God is and how we can serve him from the pages of Scripture. So we always ask questions when we read the Bible. And this... so. God is establishing a theocracy, this nation that's led by him for hundreds of years. The people of Israel were a nation, but instead of a king or a governor, they were ruled by God. God was in charge and they had a prophet and a judge who would help interpret his word. And those people would interpret the will and the word of God. And this nation was established as a theocracy all the way up to first Samuel, which is where we're going to end season one of binge the Bible. And so this Levitical structure is the governmental structure that God is creating. And these ceremonial laws help build that. The way that we sort all these things out is by using something called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is one of those fun words you learn in seminary that they could have made simpler. It is interpreting the Bible by considering its initial context, its intended reader, and the whole study of interpretation, meaning the story from start to finish. How does it align with the entirety of the Bible? This is the questions we ask when we're trying to determine what the Bible is saying. First, we say, who wrote it? Who did they write it to? What was the intended purpose when they wrote it? What were they communicating and why at the time that they wrote it? And what does it mean in the context of Scripture? 
If we study the laws of Leviticus and place them in this hermeneutical interpretation, we can separate moral law from ceremonial law from civil law pretty easily. Uh, Tattoo laws, for example, let's just go there. I've been called the illustrated man myself. Nobody's ever called me that. That's from Blades of Glory, Will Ferrell. Um, Tattoo laws appear in Leviticus and they are in reference to the way that the pagans live. It's the way that they're given. The people that worshiped all kinds of idols and fake pagan gods outside of the Hebrew peoples that were living around them and in the nations that they were living in had ceremonial pagan tattoos as a form of worship for their gods. God says, don't do that because I am separating you from the world around you. It's there in Leviticus and we do not see it in the whole context of scripture. And so we can determine that the original audience was the Hebrew people at this time wandering in the wilderness and that the intent context was the Hebrew people at this time wandering in the wilderness. I could be wrong about that. God will tell me one day. Will I have my tattoos in heaven? Probably not. I don't know. Uh, Hermeneutics helps us understand that sexual laws given in chapter 18 uh, are repeated from Genesis through the epistles in the New Testament. We know they're still relevant. The morality given there, there are some aspects of that, of marriage law and everything that Jesus does away with in conversation. And then there's aspects that are repeated over and over and over again, all the way to the end of the story. So we know they're moral laws that apply not just in Leviticus, but all the way across into the day that we're living in now. We use Hermeneutics to interpret which laws matter and which ones don't. Dietary laws, we know that God did away with in the first century. And so we just have to study the whole of scripture to be able to figure all of this out. After the laws, Leviticus lays out festivals to celebrate. And he makes it clear, God makes it clear through Moses in this book that he wants everyone multiple times a year to stop, celebrate, consider, worship and be in his presence. He gives a system of celebration in Leviticus. It's incredible. So that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Here's three things to take away from it. Number one, sin causes separation. What happened in Genesis chapter three affected everybody. It puts distance between us and God. Isaiah 59, 22, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God is holy and he is perfect. And our sin makes it impossible for us to approach him. But he is a good God. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And he doesn't want to be separated from you. I remember being young and in church and hearing all this in the Old Testament. It's a lot to take in when you're five years old. All these rules, all these standards of holiness. I remember as I grew, having the distinct feeling or the distinct understanding that I would never be good enough, that I would never get it all right, that that there was never going to be a day where I could follow not all the rules, but just enough to be accepted by these people, these religious folks. I was never going to be able to check all the boxes. I was never going to be good enough. I was under the impression that the rules we see in the Bible, the standards that are set, were about separation. That these were about God separating himself from us. 
but I had it all wrong. I completely missed the point. God did not give all these laws in Leviticus because he was trying to create distance between us. He gave us these laws because he was trying to create a way for us to get closer. The law isn't about separation. It's about proximity. Second thing is this, God created a way back. We have a human understanding, which makes it difficult to grasp God things. If God doesn't want a distance between us, why not eliminate it? He's God. Well, God did eliminate it. It's just not simple. It's just not that easy. God is just and unchanging. This song that we sang this morning, I take you at your word. You said it, I believe it. We can declare that because we know that God's word never changes. It's unfailing. What he says, he means. That means he can't go back on it and he can't just wipe it away and say, I forget about the whole thing. He said sin would lead to death and it would separate us from him. And that word was final, but it wasn't the final word. We know that sacrifice began to make a way for us to get back into the presence of God in Genesis chapter four. This is who God is. Sin separated us from God in Genesis three. God starts to make a way back in Genesis four. Atonement has been possible because he wants to be in relationship with us. That's why this system exists. And so Leviticus made a way that was temporary until the world was prepared and ready for Jesus to make a way that is permanent. A permanent way for us to be in the presence of God. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, still making mistakes, still driving ourselves farther from God, Christ died for us. He became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He became the sacrificial lamb. He became the one that would take all of our sin upon himself. And because of that, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of Jesus, we can be forgiven without all of this. He took the place of all of it. A perfect sacrifice, not a temporary one, a permanent one, where he could go and take all of his sin upon us. It says that God couldn't even look upon sin, which meant that in the moment at the cross, as Jesus was on the cross and all of my sin and your sin was being laid upon him, that God had to look away from him in this moment of suffering. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this, this moment, Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice so that this whole system could be made completed in him. That I could approach the throne of God. And the system of tabernacles and temples and the ark and all of it ended at that moment. The temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. God's presence was among the people. And now I had to sacrifice. I had to work. I had to do all of these things to get close to the presence of God, but not even in his physical presence. And now because of God's sacrifice through Jesus, the presence of God can dwell inside of me. This book, Leviticus, declares the greatest truth we could ever receive, and that is that God made a way. But it's also a reminder for us. Number three is this. Holiness matters. It still matters. Even though I am now able to dwell in the presence of God, as we worship here on Sunday morning, I can be in the presence of God. 
as I go into my prayer closet. I can be in the presence of God. When I'm driving in my car, I can be in the presence of God. When I'm having a conversation, I can be in the presence of God. I can have that presence and that closeness all the time if I pursue it. But it doesn't mean that God is no longer holy. His holiness is the same now as it was as we started Leviticus. And he is still asking us to move into a standard of holiness. He still wants us to live a different way. That's what practicing the way is all about. These practices of Jesus. It's about learning how to live the way that Jesus did to follow him and separate ourselves from a world that has taken you down the wrong path. I don't know about you, but before I came into a relationship with Jesus, I tried everything. Every path I could think of, I just wanted to feel whole. I just wanted to feel fulfilled. I wanted to feel like I mattered. I never found it. Everything left me emptier, left me more broken, left me wanting for more. But in a relationship with Jesus, I found purpose. I found peace. I found satisfaction. I found joy. And all of those things come by pursuing the holiness of Christ, by getting closer to his persona, by separating ourselves from this path the world is on and getting on the path that God created us to walk. That's what holiness is. Romans chapter 12, too, says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God has a purpose in mind for you, and it will give you fulfillment where the world would only give you longing. Living in that purpose looks different than the way the rest of the world lives, and that is a good thing we are made to be different. Jesus says this about his followers in John 17. They are not of this world the same way I'm not of this world. We're meant to be set apart. Holiness is still our goal. I love the way that God, or that Paul talks about the law in Galatians chapter three. He says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It was a placeholder. It was there to help us understand God, to give us a framework to try to move closer to God, but it was our guardian. And we had a father making his way to us, a father that would welcome us in, that would give us his presence, that would bestow gifts upon us, that would give us the power of his spirit to do his works here on this earth, that we might be able to pursue holiness with resources that these people could have only dreamed of. Holiness matters, but God is good and faithful to forgive. He is just. He has created a new system for us to live in. And the book of Leviticus should remind us of how good he is and compassionate and gracious he has been. If you're here today, and you are ready to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to earn your way to him, trying to work your way through it. Maybe, maybe you've been trying to do the right things, check the right boxes, or maybe you just, maybe you didn't need Leviticus to know how far away you were from God. You, you've just felt insufficient, far away, unworthy for a long time. God's word declares that he has made you worthy that he has brought himself closer to you and that he has given you a way to a better life than you've ever dreamed of. 
If you'd like to enter into that today, it just begins by saying yes to the sacrifice that's being offered to you, by entering into that relationship. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, say this prayer with me, Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. And I receive your forgiveness today. I believe in you. And all that I am, I am yours. I give myself to you. Set me apart. Make me holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.